Coming up, Taika Waititi describes why he thinks Thor Ragnarok feels like it was made by six-year-olds. Then U.S. documentary grand prize jury winners at Sundance, Dan Sickles and Antonio Santini, tell us how they got so up close and personal with the subject of their film, Dina. So I've always known of, of like this martini glass hot tub. You know, I can't relate, really relate to the Incredible Hulk uh, other than I get angry sometimes. Um, yeah, Thor is essentially a, a, a rich kid from outer space. Um, and, I, you know, I can't really identify with that. She ended up staying at my, at my room. And one day I looked in my room and Dina <laughs> was in my bed. And I was like, hmm, I guess I never thought I was like gonna end up being like really good friends with you know a woman of this age basically so you know took away his hammer banished him across the universe you know and really he's just trying to get home we've all tried to get home at four in the morning and uh you know been lost <laughs> wandering the streets and that's really what this is we've basically made after hours in space <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in, shut the door behind you. You can come in and help us take down the Halloween decorations. We're already putting up the Christmas stuff, so, you know, before you leave, just make sure you didn't sit in any tinsel. We've got a bunch of guests for you today. A little bit later on, Taika Watiti will be here. You know him and love him as the director of films like Hunt for the Wilder People, Boy, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. He's back with a, a little film you may have heard of. It's called Four Ragnarok, and we'll get to that in just a little while. First up, though, I want you to meet Dan Sickles and Antonio Santini. They have a film, it's an award-winning documentary called Dina, and you will be amazed at the level of intimacy that these filmmakers were able to achieve. It's the story of a middle-aged woman preparing to marry her boyfriend, and it benefits from the level of access awarded to Dan and Antonio, but it's deepened by the fact that the bride and the groom are on the autism spectrum. Uh, this is a really fascinating film, and I wanted to know how it is that they were able to get so up close and personal. Well, it turns out Dan has a family connection. It's actually quite a bit of history. Um, Dina, Dina's known me since before I was born. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and she, she, uh, I mean, she tells the story best, but she was, she was actually my babysitter for, for a bit of time as well. Um, and my, my dad met her, uh, because he was her teacher in high school. And, um, around the time that she graduated, he started a group for adults, uh, with developmental disabilities called the Abington Kiwanis Action Club. And, uh, that club, you know, it, it meets bi-monthly. Uh, it's, it's, it continues today, uh, meeting in the, in the basement of like the public library. And it's it's a it's a social service organization, um, and and as well as teaching like leadership skills and stuff like that, um, and and being a social club. So, I grew up going to these meetings, you know. So I've I've known Dina all of my life, as well as, as the supporting cast for the film. You know, Frank and Monica, and Patrick and Laura and, and all of those guys. Um, and and I lost my dad back in 2013. And, you know, because of that, Antonio and I ended up going back to Philadelphia to kind of continue post-production on our first film. 
And that's when Dina and I, you know, really reconnected. And, and it was only a few months after that, that that she started telling me about Scott and, and that eventually he had proposed. Um, so, you know, the film really began from, from this, from this, this, this opening that had been created sort of, you know, because of my dad's loss, but also because of us, by virtue of us being down there and, and being in the area. Um, and that's, that's really where things started for the film. And that is why, I mean, this film is really an intimate portrait. I mean, when I was watching this, I kept thinking, I didn't know the backstory when I watched the film. And I kept thinking, right. how did they get you know, in the bedrooms, in the, how did they get this up close and personal uh, with these people? But that is, it's the connection. It's the lifelong connection. Antonio, um, how did you feel walking into that situation? Um, um, well, yeah, I, I definitely felt like, uh, at first a bit of, uh, an outsider in the space because I grew up in Puerto Rico and for production, we moved and we got a house in, in a few different houses in Philly. So the whole environment and space was new for me. And the whole relationship with Dina and Dan's father and then this kind of bonding that they had was definitely, you know, a very unique and, and special thing that was happening throughout production. So, you know, it was happening in front of me. Um, my relationship with Dina you know, was different. Like, I met her at Dan's father's funeral, and she had just been friendly to me there. And then we kind of... It's funny because she had to come to New York a few times to do press and stuff like that, and she didn't have a place to stay, and she ended up staying at my in my room. And one day I looked in my room, and Dina <laughs> was in my bed, and I was like, hmm, I guess I never thought I was, like gonna end up being like really good friends with you know a woman of this age basically and, um, and the subject of one of your films yeah and the subject <laughs> of the film and then the relationship was just so unique that you know we also like worked together on her writing so for me it's it's been it's been an, uh, an unexpected friend and an unexpected collaborator because the more that she watches the film and the more that she travels with Dan and me to promote the film and to talk to people at universities and screenings, the more, um, how do I say it, the more um, ownership she takes over the project, mm -hmm. which is what we wanted for her, for her always, right? To feel proud and confident enough in it to really be the face of the project instead of having Dan and me speak on behalf of her. Right. Um, so it's been cool. And when you were making the film, were there any moments where you thought, oh, this is too much, we're, 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 we've gone too far, this could be seen as being exploitive? No, I, I wouldn't say no. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> well, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that like, there, there were moments that we necessarily viewed what was happening in front of the camera through like, the lens of, of exploitation. Um, I think that, you know, if, if you're going to make a film about a couple that, that's focused on, on a real-life relationship, you know, you, you have to be willing to go to uncomfortable places in moments, you know. Any relationship has, has these moments built into its beginnings, right? And, 
And I think that, you know, part of our job was to create and maintain an atmosphere where anything could happen, you know, but that Dina could also feel free to to be honest and open. Um, but, you know, I, I think that... I think something important to acknowledge too is that all of all of those moments, um, which I think a lot of people are, are surprised and sometimes shocked by, they, they come from you know an, an intense collaboration between us and Scott and Dina. You know, um, it, it, it was never as if we would just walk into the apartment in the middle of the night and pop our camera down in their bedroom. <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, like these these moments, like like capturing them going to bed, that that idea would come about from conversations with Scott and Dina about you know what they were going through and what they were experiencing and what they were feeling, you know, um, and and that that was something that we worked with them to capture. In the film, she talks uh, about watching reality shows and, and how they film. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, we see a little bit of I Am Kate and a couple of other things. It, was she, uh, how aware of sort of that process was she, of the camera? Did you, did you have to work with them a little while? Because when you put anyone in front of a camera, they behave a little bit differently, you know? So how long did it take to get... Uh, past the point where uh, the camera was like this big object in the room that perhaps they uh, felt they had to perform in front of, or, or 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 maybe they didn't. I don't know, but I'm just asking the question. I don't think that the camera being there was ever an object that threatened. If anything, it was more about having Dina stop interacting with Dan and me or Adam right. throughout the process, where we say, Dina, like... Because we were always hanging out, so when the camera was on, it was such a small camera that it wouldn't really change anything in the room. Right. And we had to be like, Dina, okay, now, now we're not in the hangout mode, now we're in the filming mode. And then she'd be like, oh, okay. So it was, I mean, we have so much footage of Dina looking at us and, like, laughing with us or saying something. And us being like, Dina, not now. Like, we'll hang out, you know, like, give us, like, two more hours and then we'll go to dinner or we'll go to a movie. So that was... If anything, she was never really uncomfortable in front of the camera because she was trained as an actress when she was younger, right. and she'd always wanted to keep to keep acting, being in plays. She always looked up to Dan, who studied acting at NYU. And what was cool about that and the camera, if anything, was that it made Dina really playful. Like I think she really looked forward to when we showed up with the camera because it was a moment in the day where she felt like she got to play with the new friends. Right. And she, it, yeah, I don't know. We, we, when we were filming, like we would sometimes, you know, it was so natural and the scenes that you see in the movie as they unfold, which sometimes are really um, kind of, you know, surreal. Jim we would be watching them unfold and we'd be like, oh, wow. And then when we would turn off the camera, we would look at her to see if she would change her behavior, if she was acting or if anything, and she was identical. So we... We, for us, it was also kind of impressive to see how, how, how she remained intact throughout the whole thing. Dina had a terrible thing happen to her, and I don't want to give anything away for people that haven't seen it, but she has a terrible thing happen to her that the film reveals as it goes on. Um, that thing is pivotal to her story. Was she open to going there from the very beginning? 
You know, I, I met with the, uh, the district attorney that tried her case pretty early on in the process. Um, because I had obviously known about the incident. My dad was with her at the hospital when she was in a coma for three days. And, uh, you know, even before talking to, to John, I, I reached out to Dina and I was like, hey, are you cool with me talking to him? Are you cool with me receiving this information for, from him? And, uh, and, and, and she said yes. You know, I think that, that, again, she sort of articulates the moment in the film as a testament to her strength. Right. Um, which I think is a very, very mature way of, of looking at it. And, you know, we, we would show Scott and Dina, we would show them multiple cuts throughout the post-production process to get their feedback, to, to hear if anything wasn't, wasn't ringing true or, or authentic to them. And I remember the first time that we watched, that we watched the film and we got to that point and I, I tried to stop it. Um, just because, you know, like we, we had a lot of things to do that day. I think she had a doctor's appointment or something later on. And I, and I just didn't want to, I, I didn't want to throw her into, you know, any, uh, any episode. <laughs> and, uh, and she was actually the one that was like, no, like I want to, I want to hear it, huh. you know? And, and I think that something that the film, something that we were working to do with the film uh, was to sort of to, to, to validate and dignify her experience, to say that, yes, your history is, is real and it's complex. And, you know, and that's what's, that's what's beautiful and, and tragic and, and humane about it. And, you know, going, going back to your last question, I think that Dina sort of saw that opportunity in the same way. Um, that the, the camera wasn't there to to take from her as much as it was to validate, you know, what she what she experiences in her day to day life. Well, I love the and, way, oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, you got. I, it. I love the way you visualize it with yeah. the long shot. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's that beautiful. was luck. <laughs> was it? That was yeah, because you know we we filmed we filmed that scene during during the honeymoon, and it's not until months later where you're starting to like, you know, put pieces together and pull them apart in the editing room. Right. And and you know our editor Sophia Supercasso, she's she's sort of brilliant at like taking these sort of unexpected pieces and and bashing them together to see if they work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it was sort of a similar experience with the first film in this one particular scene uh, where, where we have one of our characters singing into a, a, a makeshift microphone um, to a Barbara Streisand song. But, you know, it, it was like the second that Sophia put it together and she showed us what it looked like, it was like, that's, that's exactly it. Like, that's, that's right, you know. What do Dina and Scott think of the film now that it's all said and done? I think we've touched on Dina, but what does Scott think of the film? Scott um, Scott went to us to Sundance with Dina to the premiere, and he's less like Dina is a, is a self-described diva. Uh, Scott Scott keeps more to himself, and you kind of don't really know what he's thinking until he starts either singing or he says something really profound out of nowhere about the movie. Um, he loves it. I think, you know, he he first got involved in it because he just wanted to support Dina, and I don't think he even, he even really completely understood the whole scope of the project. Like, he knew it was a movie about Dina, so he kind of sometimes didn't even know why he, almost like why he needed to be there. And we said, well, you know, you're part of Dina's life now, so now you're part of the story. Um, 
but he's been kind of a, an, an unexpected surprise because Dina got sick during the Philly premiere and she couldn't attend the press or the premiere, so Scott went for her and he did so good. Like, he's just so good at the mic and he's so good with crowds and he's so comfortable with them and he's really funny and, and earnest. Um, yeah, it's... I think it's inspired some confidence in him, too. You know, we, we made a music video um, featuring, it, it's for one of the tracks in the film, um, and and Scott is starring in this video, and it, and it's cool to see him, you know, post it on Facebook and to be sharing it with certain people, almost as a way of of a sort of you know showing who he is to people who might not have seen that side of him before, and 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 I've seen him start to do similar things with the film too, um, which is obviously it's less accessible because it's not sitting on YouTube right now, but it's it's really cool to see how he's also taken ownership over the film as well as, as, hey, like, this is this is who I am. In case I haven't been able to communicate it to you before, you know, you should check out this video, you should check out the movie, like, then you'll understand what music means to me and why I feel certain ways about certain things. And and that's been cool to, to see him use it as a piece to, to showcase himself. The martini glass jacuzzi scene... Uh, yep. Everybody, uh, everybody talks about it. Uh, just tell me. <laughs> I mean, that was a, it was it was a blast. You know, I grew up I grew up with infomercials uh, for Covehaven because I grew up in the same area as Scott and Dina. Right. So I've always known of of like this martini glass hot tub. You know, um, and when Scott said that he booked the honeymoon there. Like we were, we were ecstatic because you know I knew exactly what it was right away that he was that he had you know booked, and uh, I mean it was kind of funny because it was like it was only three of us on set and we kind of had to sneak into the room because it's a couples resort, <laughs> so like there were three of us in like a smaller room because with our production budget we couldn't afford the the room that Scott got. And uh, we were we were just kind of like sneaking back and forth, you know, into their room during during that shot. But then also, you know, we, we made sure to, to give them enough time by themselves. You know, like the, the scene that's in the film, it's not their first night uh, at their honeymoon, you know. So, so we, 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 we tried to gauge how much distance to keep and, and sort of, you know, how to, how to facilitate certain things that they wanted, you know, which was like going to a certain restaurant and stuff like that. Uh, so that it wasn't all of us just like impeding on what was supposed to be this this wonderful vacation for them. That was Dan Sickles and Antonio Santini. The movie is called Dina. Check your local listings wherever you are. It's open in a few cities across the country and it will be coming to more soon, I'm sure, or you can find it streaming somewhere. But, you know, this is a movie that, as I say, is kind of a fly-on-the-wall look at the lives of Dina and her husband, Scott. And after the end credits roll, there, there may or may not be a happy ending for Dina and Scott, and no effort is made here to suggest a fairy tale romance. Uh, it is simply... And this is more than enough, but it's simply a heartfelt look at two people facing and then hopefully overcoming considerable problems. Dina's worth a look. Check it out. 
For Ragnarok, you have heard all about this movie. Chris Hemsworth shaved off most of his hair so he doesn't look like the Norse god that we saw in the first couple of films. You've probably heard that it's a lot funnier than some of the other uh, superhero films that are out there. Well, that is all due to a guy called Taika Waititi. He's a New Zealander director. Uh, we know his movies, as I mentioned before, like Hunt for the Wilder People, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, Boy. Uh, he's a very accomplished guy. This is his first big-time Hollywood film, though. And uh, he came out with a, a really great attitude, which you're going to hear that in the interview here. Uh, I asked him, as we were just getting everything started, how it is that this film still feels like a Taika Waititi film, even though it cost about $150 million more than anything he's ever made before. I definitely feel like this is a, um, this is a Taika Waititi film. This feels to me like a... Um... Yeah, it's just it, it it could live uh, comfortably in the box set. Yeah, and it, you described it as being Taika esque. What does that mean I to you? I don't even know if I said that. I was just trying to find a different kind of word. I wasn't trying to coin a, a, a term, but um, it's just you know, and I guess what I mean is just that it, you know, it shares that sensibility that the rest of my films do. That it has um, a certain tone, type of humor, and visual gags that you know that you that. Uh, common in my film and how do you find a balance then between all that stuff that they hired you to bring to it and then working for uh, a big company that is well established in terms of the stories that they're telling it's part of a big series how do you find that balance how do you strike that balance well my thing really is to, um, you know i have to be respectful of the source material and mm -hmm. yeah you know, and, and and where the film kind of fits in with all the you know the other things that they're doing but um but really, I, I, my my whole thing was just to do my own take on on this film and try and make the best film I could, whilst um, you know letting Marvel kind of keep me in my lane mm -hmm. and you know making sure I didn't um, you know um, sort of veer off too far to the left or right um, with their with their precious character. <laughs> and how, what will people see that's different of Thor this time? Well, this is a, um, a way more colourful and, um, and vibrant um, take on, on the Thor, on the character and, and the kind of adventures he has. Um, we're borrowing a lot of our design from, uh, from the great artist Jack Kirby, who was one of the co-creators of, of a lot of these characters. And so, you know, right from the start, we're, you know, we're, we're pulling away from that kind of desaturated um, sort of um, darker style from a lot of other superhero movies. And we're being more unapologetic about, you know, wanting this to be a fun adventure um, through the cosmos and, you know, filling it with incredible characters and monsters. And really, I think making a film... Um, it feels like this film was made by six-year-olds, uh, basically used. I don't know if there's any color left um, in existence that we haven't put into either the poster or into the movie. Kurt Russell was one of the inspirations for yeah, this. Tell me yeah. a little bit about that, because I thought it was really fascinating to hear you talk about that, and then having seen the movie, it makes perfect sense. But explain Yeah. Well, one of the touchstones for me uh, making this film was um, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan, um, growing up, you know, watching him and, and admiring him. And, um, uh, yeah, that, that was the kind of hero that I feel like I identified with the most, was, was someone who was fun, funny, um, 
charming, someone who you wanted to follow into an adventure. Um, and that's, I feel like, the qualities that Chris displays, much like um, Bruce Willis. You know, there's this kind mm-hmm. of classic um, actor who, you know, these, some of these guys who, who just fit the hero mold. And um, I feel like Chris is one of those guys you just, you know, you want to tag along. So um, so that's really what we we're going for with, you know, with, um, with referencing Kurt and, and, and trying to kind of recapture that um, that style of hero, which I feel has been lost in a lot of movies now. He's almost always the the point of view of the audience as well. Absolutely. He asks questions all the way that's through. Right, right? That's right, that's right. And in Big Trouble, Kurt Russell asks questions the entire time, and it's really what the audience is thinking. Who's this guy? What is this? Where am I? Where's my truck? What am I doing here? <laughs> and um, I feel like Chris has got a similar thing. We're experiencing you know, most of the film, and definitely Sakaar, the, um, the, the strange alien planet run by Jeff Goldblum, we're experiencing that through um, through Thor's eyes, and he's constantly confused and doesn't know what's going on, and trying to figure out you know, who these people are, and, um, and everyone he encounters, except for Korg, the rock monster, everyone <laughs> um, wants something from him. They either want to kill him, or eat him, or sell him, or exploit him, or put him in the games. Um, and that's a great, you know, just seeing him on the back foot and you know, giving this hero. Um, stripping this hero down from all of these things which made him so strong mm-hmm. and then sending him off on his journey, I think, is just way cooler and way more interesting to watch than all-powerful Thor just being all-powerful through the entire movie. Well, one of the things that happens early on in the film is that, and I don't want to give anything away, and I won't, but uh, he one of his tools is taken away. <laughs> one <laughs> of his tools. <laughs> one of his special things from his toolbox yeah, is, um, is taken away, and that, that changes everything. Changes everything. Yeah. Um, and we and and a, a big part of these films, for me at least, is that you know how do you how do you humanize or how do you get the audience to relate to these superheroes? Because if you take all of them individually from any of these Marvel or DC movies, they're very hard to um, very hard to relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't relate really relate to the Incredible Hulk other than I get angry sometimes. Um, yeah, Thor is essentially a, a, a rich kid from outer space. Um, and I, you know, I can't really identify with that. And so, how do you get, you know, mm-hmm. how do you bring them down to our level and give them our kind of problems? And that was something we um, we focused on quite quite heavily in this film. You know, it's like, and even to the point where, you know, we you know have Hulk and Thor sitting on a bed after having an argument talking about feelings. You know, like it's like, how do we kind of just humanize them a bit more and put them in situations we've all been in? Um, and and the other thing really is you know about stripping stripping Thor down um, to our level. So we you know, took away his hammer, banished him across the universe. You know, and really he's just trying to get home. We've all tried to get home yeah. at four in the morning, and uh, you know been lost, <laughs> wandering the streets. And that's really what this is. We've basically made after hours in space. <laughs> Can you teach someone to be creative? When you look at this film, I see kind of unbridled creativity from the visual point of view, from where it takes the story, from all that. And so it got me thinking, you know, when you talk about Kurt Russell and you're talking about a little bit of inspiration there and, you know, artists' lives, I think, are, are you know, ripe for the picking. You, you you take bits and pieces from everywhere, but can you actually teach someone to be creative, do you think? Yeah, I think that we're all creative. I think we're all, you know, people often ask about improvising, Every human on earth is improvising every minute of the day. Yeah. There's no script. Um, we're all making it up as we go along. And I actually believe that, you know, that you know, there's a huge amount of creativity in, you know, in, in what people would 
sometimes and I think wrongly call everyday jobs, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, builders are creative, plumbers are creative, you know, every you we're all creating something in somehow in some way. Even someone making dinner for their family is, you know, trying to trying to impress their audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Bartenders making drinks, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um when did you realize then that you would be able to make a living as a creative person? Was there a, was there a switch? Was there a time that that happened? For you? <laughs> I think when I got this job. <laughs> Before that, uh, I was yeah, I, I really convinced myself that um, you can't. No, it's not true. I you know I'd, I'd managed to get um, a decent um, decent career in, in, in advertising as well as making my features and stuff. And you know my features, yeah, you know, I made decent money out of those. Um, but there's got to be that moment when you're like, oh, man, this is actually going to work. Yeah. When, when was that? It <laughs> might have been on after my second film. You know, because in, in New Zealand, at least, if you're a filmmaker, you really resign yourself to the, you know, the, 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 the very real possibility that you will just be poor forever. Um, and so, but on the flip side, you know, you're creating and you're being an artist and you're making films that, you know, I get, I used to get to go to film festivals and, you know, travel around. So there was a really great, you know, upside to it as well. Um, it was, it was more that, you know, would I ever really own a house? It was kind of the main question. And is that important anymore? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the idea of what success is now is different. It is. In, yeah. In a new age. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I think success used to be success, uh, was just about money. Yeah. You know, how much money are you making? It's not important anymore. You know, what success really, and especially if you're an artist is, you know, are you creating and are people liking your work and, you know, are you satisfied that you're, you know, with what you're doing? Do you think that, uh, having, with that in mind, having said that, that the next film will be a $150 million film or will it be a $1 million film and doesn't matter? Well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, as long as the food's good. <laughs> The the, the the next one will not be um, a huge huge budget. It'll be a, you know an okay so sort of yeah. on the more um, on the lower end, and it'll be one of my screenplays that I've I've written and I've you know I've got a few um, screenplays that have sort of lined up ready to go. And I'd like to do that you know that classic thing one for me one for them. Yeah. Um, so maybe go back and do next year do one of my films and then. Hopefully, come back and do something else with the studio, or you know, or someone else, and and yeah, it's gonna go big and small, big and small. Thank you so much. Thank you for having. What a pleasure. Taika Waititi certainly brings a sense of fun to Thor. Uh, I love that he says that the film feels like it's made by a six-year-old. Well, he's talking about himself, of course. That's it. That's all the time we have for this week. My thanks to Taika Waititi, to Dan Sickles, and Antonio Santini for coming by. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for coming by, helping us take down all the Halloween decorations, starting to put up the Christmas stuff. We love it when you come by. We put a new show up every single Monday. Without you, there'd be no point in us doing this. So please make sure that you come back every single week. Spend a little bit of time with us. And, you know, keep checking back because you never know who's going to be here. It might be one of your favorite people. And we know that you don't want to miss that. <laughs>